You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Protect your online privacy today. Use our exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash missionlog, and you can get an extra three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash missionlog. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 402, Wrongs Darker Than Death or Night. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we dig deep into the past, present, and future of Star Trek to see if we can learn the important lessons and share them with you all. This week, wrongs darker than death or night, the one where Major Kira digs into her own past to see if she can learn an important lesson or two. That is, if it's the will of the prophets, it's always contingent on that. Of course, it's always contingent upon the will of the prophets, but what isn't is how I'm going to tell all of you out there how to get in touch with us, and then maybe if the prophets let me, then John Champion can do the trivia thing, but we'll see if we can get to that. So Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek, and that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter, then follow us and write us at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323-522-5641. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Now, John, I just want to let you know that the, the, uh, the podcast powers that be have granted mm. me access to the orb of podcasts and the orb <laughs> of trivia. So now you have permission from the prophets for this week's trivia. See, of course, of course, there's an orb of podcasts, and of course, there's an orb of trivia. So let's uh, let's get sucked into those for a moment, shall we? Today's episode was written by Iris Stephen Bear and Hans Beimler, but as usual, that doesn't tell you the whole story about the script's development. Ira, along with Bradley Thompson and some of the other usual suspects, have been looking for a good opportunity to explore more depths and some more volatility with Kira. They did the math to figure out how much of her family's story had been explored and landed where they had an opportunity with something in the past with Kira's mother and Ducat. Prior to that, though, a very different story took shape where literal ghost children from Tarek Nor's past were popping up due to a time travel experiment and, well, that story got scrapped entirely. So uh, this was directed by Jonathan West, uh, another familiar name here. We've talked about how Jonathan was director of photography on TNG and DS9, picking up where Marvin Rush left off. He then directed once for TNG and a few times on DS9, including the very challenging Trials and Tribulations. This is his next to last episode as a director on DS9. The title. The title of this episode is from Prometheus Unbound. That was Hans Beimler's idea to lift a line from Percy Shelley, the drama of Prometheus stealing fire from the gods and giving it to humankind. 
In Ira's estimation, the line refers to Descartes' nature even more so than a comment on Meru's actions. Let's talk about our guest stars. From the Bajoran resistance on Tarek Noor, we have Hal Dyer, played by Tim Dazarn. Uh, not the first time that we've seen Tim on Star Trek, and honestly, he didn't look entirely different when he was one of the alien hijackers on TNG's Starship Mine, also known to our listeners as Die Hard in Space. He'll be back for more track with a couple of appearances on Voyager. You may have also caught him in a recurring role on Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. Another Bajoran we meet is the collaborator Basso, played by David Bowe. Now, this is the only Trek appearance for Bo, but you may have seen him in some well-known feature films like The Cable Guy or UHF, in which he plays Bob, Weird Al's best friend. But if you haven't seen him, you've definitely heard him. Bo has a massive career as a voiceover actor for hundreds of national TV ads. He's been the voice of IHOP, Cheerios, Bud Light, Burger King, just to name a very few. We meet an older Cardassian legate played by Wayne Grace. He's not new to Star Trek or science fiction for that matter. His voice turns up on more than a few Star Trek and Star Wars video games. He's also been on TNG playing a Klingon in, oh, oh dear, uh, Aquiel, TNG. Uh, he will be back one more time again in Klingon makeup for an episode of Enterprise. Now we meet the Kira family. Welcome back to Thomas Capacci as Taban. We've seen Thomas as Taban before in Ties of Blood and Water, and you may recall that he has a rare distinction being among only five actors to play seven or more characters on Star Trek. Think way back to the TNG episode Emergence, where the holodeck had a runaway train. He was the engineer. We've also seen him as a Romulan and a Starfleet officer, We'll see him again in other roles, including Vulcan and Suliban. Finally, Leslie Hope appears as Kira Reese's mother, Meru. Canadian-born Terry has appeared in a number of recurring roles on high-profile shows like NCIS and 24, where she played Terry Bauer. As an actor, there are just too many good ones to mention. Add to that a background in live theater, and you cap it all off with the fact that she's also a writer, producer, and director. Her directing credits include multiple episodes of Law & Order, Lost in Space, the new one on Netflix, Van Helsing, and Snowpiercer. What I'm saying is that she stays busy in front of and behind the camera, this is Leslie's only Star Trek appearance. I hear that family reunions between organics are often extremely awkward. Let's hope that is not the case here. Prologue. Sitting in Quark's bar, Jadzia and Worf debate the merits of throwing a party when the USS Saratoga arrives. I'll let you ponder who's for it and who's against it. When Worf goes away to the hollow suite for some exercise, Quark passes through with a bouquet of Bajoran lilacs for Major Kira. That grabs Dax's interest, and Kira explains that those were her mother's favorite flower, and since it would have been her birthday, it's a tradition she keeps for herself. Later that night, 
Kira is awakened by a private message from Gul Dukat, who also acknowledges that it is Kira Meru's birthday. And how did he know? After all, Meru died in a prison camp when Nerys was only three. Not so, says Dukat. He knows because Meru was his lover until she died, and she would have liked the Bajoran lilacs on Major Kira's nightstand. Act 1. Major Kira, rattled by what she's heard, starts the next day trying to get more information about her late mother. Her mood has taken a downward turn, and she has no patience for the chief and Dr. Bashir discussing Sweet adventures or anyone else in ops not doing their jobs. She even busies herself with micromanaging Odo's work, but he's more direct about getting her to do something about what's bothering her. So she does. Kira goes to Captain Sisko and tells him about the late-night call from Dukat. She's running into dead ends to try to figure it out, but there's one thing she could do with his help. Visit Bajor for an encounter with the Orb of Time, because that's just a thing you can do if you need to go back in time and see for yourself. Sisko, with his emissary hat on, okays it, and away Kira goes to seek the will of the prophets. When Kira Nerys opens the box containing the orb, she is instantly whooshed away into a cave refugee camp on Bajor, and the first person she sees is her father, Taban, calling out to his wife, Meru, that he found their little daughter, Nerys. Act 2. It's Major Kira, clearly as someone else in this scenario, watching her own mother and father decades ago fuss over their three-year-old daughter, Nerys, who had run off scrounging for food. Food is scarce, and Bajorans are threatening other Bajorans like some thugs are doing to the Kira family. Nerys, well, the adult Nerys, steps in and thwarts them, and the grateful Kira family asks her name. Luma, she says, creating a cover for herself. The genial meeting is interrupted when a Bajoran named Basso enters the cave with a directive. He works for the Cardassians, and he's there to recruit comfort women for his superiors. Among his picks are Meru and Luma. Before they know it, Meru and Luma are aboard Terraknor, sent to their new quarters by Basso after a speech about how they should look their best for tomorrow. Upon entering their quarters, Luma is already plotting to find resistance, but Maru is distracted by the spread of fresh food, the likes of which she hasn't seen in ages. It's too much to take in, her excitement, but also the reality of their situation. Luma tries to console her, saying they'll get out, they'll escape to the hills and join the resistance there. And in stroking Maru's hair, Luma reveals a large scar running down the length of her cheek, Maru flinches and says she failed to show a Cardassian soldier the proper respect. Luma says they all have scars in one way or another, and Maru is touched and grateful for the friendship they've made. The next day, Basso lines up the women, all prepared to meet the Cardassian officers. His tone is threatening about what's expected of them and what happens if they fail. But he's interrupted by Gul Dukat, who starts playing good cop, reassuring them that the Cardassians aren't all bad, and he intends to prove it. First thing he notices is the scar on Maru, and he asks for a dermal regenerator to erase it, and the gulf between their two people. Act 3. The Cardassians and the Comfort Women are socializing. It's a party, and Maru and Luma have managed to stay out of the line of sight so far. 
A brash, older Cardassian legate teases Luma a bit about how she probably wants to get them all drunk so she can kill them in their sleep. They both watch as a young officer forcibly kisses and gropes Maru, but just in the nick of time, Dukat enters and sternly commands the young officer away. He apologizes to Maru and has her escorted back to her quarters. The legate says to Luma, I only hope you won't condemn us all for the boorish behavior of one man. And then, as if on cue, they overhear Dukat saying the exact same thing to Maru before she leaves. It's a little bit of theater that has been played out before. Dukat has marked his territory, which means Meru is off-limits to all but him. Much later, the legate has had way too much canar, and he follows Luma back to her quarters. She thwarts his attempts to enter with her, and exhausted, she goes in to find not Meru. Instead, it's Basso with some news. Meru has moved up to share quarters with the prefect, Dukat. When Luma's demands to see her are denied, she attempts to fight off the Cardassians who are there with Basso, but to no avail. She's overpowered and thrown into the brig. Act 4. It's a different life below. Luma has been in the ore processing center for a few weeks, and a Bajoran there, Halb Dyer, is pushing her for any information he can get to help the resistance. Maps, descriptions of the rooms the Cardassians occupy on the station— he has some information of his own to trade. Maru and Dukat were off station for a while on a little vacation, and now they're back. Interrupting them is Basso, who comes in with a couple of soldiers to escort Luma away to see Maru in her and Dukat's quarters. Maru says things have changed in the last few weeks. No, Dukat hasn't heard her, and here he is now with a vase of flowers, Bajoran lilacs. It's Maru's call, and she has asked for Luma to be her companion. This kinder, gentler Dukat gently kisses Maru on his way out to a meeting, but as soon as he's gone, Luma tries to level with Maru. He's still the enemy. Maru defends herself and Dukat, though, saying that the prefect has asked Central Command to provide more for the Bajorans, and he's even taking care of the Kira family. Yes, what about the family? Maru still has a husband who loves her and children who need her. What about them? Maru says she's doing all of this for them. But Luma sees how easy she has it here with everything she needs. She's staying with Dukat for herself, too. She likes it. And that makes her a collaborator. Luma storms out, returning to the resistance members she had snubbed earlier. And he has something for her. A tiny easily concealable bomb that will destroy anything in a 20-meter radius. Luma will place it in Dukat's quarters, and she has no compunction about allowing the blast to take out Maru along with it. Act 5. Luma calls for Basso to take her to see Maru. When she arrives at Dukat's quarters, there's the happy couple canoodling, and Luma apologizes. Maru accepts it and apologizes herself with Dukat's blessing, Luma will get new quarters and not cause any more trouble, except, of course, for the time bomb she just planted and activated in Dukat's living room. When Dukat excuses himself, he leaves a recorded message with Maru. She starts to play it, which makes Luma pause before getting well out of the way of the impending blast. It's a message from Taban, and he's just checking in on his wife. 
letting her know that the children are happier than ever, and that he misses her greatly, and that he hopes she knows that she saved all their lives. He wishes her peace in this new life, tells her that he loves her, and while Meru breaks down in tears, Luma can't believe what she's seeing. She tells Meru to get out of the room, now, then she yells for Dukat to get out. They all evacuate just in time as the bomb explodes, Luma having saved both their lives. With that, Luma is gone. Now Kira Nerys is back in the Bajoran Temple, and then a short time later back on DS9 talking to Captain Sisko. Major Kira's feelings are mixed. It was easier before to think of collaborators as traitors and people like her mother as heroes when she thought that she had died in a labor camp. Now the truth makes it much more complicated, even with the captain's reassurance that Maru did what she did to save her family. Kira is incensed that, in the aftermath, Maru lived another seven years while people on Bejor suffered. And when Sisko points out that she still saved her life, there's a part of Kira that wishes she hadn't. The end. And we're back, and boy, that, uh, that orb of time. You know, boy, are my arms tired. Does that work with that? <laughs> That's that is what happens. You just, you get uh, yes, you, you get sore arms and uh, very jet lagged. Yeah, I think when you're so. Going back, yeah. uh, you know, thirty years in time. Uh, but hey, you know what would uh, would make you feel a whole lot better after uh, a jaunt back in time with mm. the orb? How about a party with the gang from the Saratoga? What? Oh, yeah. What? They're hey, back. Hey. The Saratoga gang is back, and I am so bummed. We are denied yet again seeing a party with the gang from the Saratoga. I mean, come on, look, and especially after everything that Dax has been through and Worf, Worf's been through a lot too, can't she please just have a crazy party? Please let her have a crazy go-nuts party. I would love that. As long as there aren't more than 50 people not smiling. (laughs) Man, Worf, see, from week to week, Worf, you have me and then you lose me. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, you, you got to relax, dude. You got to relax, Worf. And uh, something new this episode, I am so happy to see. Norman, how do you know that those flowers are from space? Because we got a space bouquet. What, what? We got a space bouquet. We just we put that up on the shelf. We, we had space pillows. We've had space forks. We've had space glasses. We've had space sheets. Mm-hmm. We've had so much. And now we have a space bouquet. I love it. Prop department working overtime here. I'd buy that for a strip of latinum. I'm going to tell you what. <laughs> yes, oh, and you know, yes. you know how it is a space bouquet. Mm-hmm. Uh, please, please tell us, please. So yes. I used to work uh, in the print industry, and there was a company called Spectratech, which makes that particular print of holographic paper. It's like a checkerboard pattern with holographic circles in it. And once you wrap that around a yes. mailing tube and hollow it out, that is how you make the perfect space bouquet wrapper. Dude, yes, yes. And now that you have shared that with our audience, I expect everybody out there to order some. And you can, just, you can make space anything, which I, I could turn this microphone into a space microphone by wrapping it in that. I am very excited about space the future micro- of space products. Yeah, yep. TM. Space mic. TM. Coming soon. <laughs> Coming soon. <laughs> 
Um, oh, and hey, you know, we talked uh, last week about the very interesting dimensional effect on that display in the runabout. And uh, not only do we have that very interesting three-dimensional point of view in the communications monitor on Kira's quarters, uh, but the camera that Ducat is looking into also zooms for dramatic effect. And why not? I, I don't know if you... Yeah, right. because it can. It mm-hmm. can. That that might be a setting that normally is disabled, but when you have an overly dramatic guy like uh, Ducat in a shuttle, a stolen Starfleet shuttle, he turns the zoom feature back on. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be leaning into the camera at some point and we'll have it zoom and zoom out with me. I think that's what happened. Well, he had an app on his phone. You have, you know, general exposition app, and then you have mm-hmm. high drama app, which zooms in on oh, you. Yeah. And only really one of your eyes. So you have this kind of like bird's eye look, this, this bird's yeah. uh, fish eye lens kind of look. Uh, Perfect. But I'll tell you what, man. If, if somebody calls me in the middle of the night and my phone says unknown caller, I'd be like, nope, ghosting. That's going yeah. straight to voicemail. <laughs> I don't know about yes. you, but uh-uh, no, no. Yes, exactly. Isn't that weird? Yeah, Kira, yeah, that's Kira's mistake. So here's an interesting thing. So speaking of like, um, you know, touch-sensitive controls, because we all live in a touch-sensitive control environment now. We're very cognizant about where we put our hands, where we put our coffee cups, what we sit down on so we don't activate mm-hmm. someone's phone or someone's keyboard, things of that nature. Bashir has no problem with that at all. In the, in the heart of, like, the control center of Deep Space Nine, he's talking to Miles. He sits yeah, down on Miles' yeah. control panel, and then he puts his hand right on top of, I would think, something important. Like, it had a lot of very serious buttons and – not buttons, but, you know, commands and all these different lights and icons. And Bashir's yeah. just like, hey, so what are we going to do with the Alamo thing, huh? He's kind of, like, tapping his fingers. I'm like, you, you're, like, literally, like, shutting down, like, trash compactors and lights, <laughs> right. you know, and, you know – fidgety stuff that the chief has kind of shoehorned together on the station. Now, someone did bring up a long time ago uh, on Mission Log, they said, you know, if a 24th century computer can't tell the difference between an intentional touch and like a, a butt dial, mm-hmm. then we're, we have a serious problem. But look, we all have touch-sensitive screens now, and yet people still get butt dialed. So it could happen. It absolutely could. For all we know, like Bashir fired photon torpedoes like, into the wormhole again or something. It's just, just over just and cause. over. Yeah. Could you imagine? It's like you know, a robot chicken version of this would be like the Dominion finally got their ships assembled again. They're about to come through the wormhole. Bashir sits down yeah. to have a cup of coffee, talk about the Alamo. Ironic, because then the Alamo would have been Deep Space Nine if he just didn't accidentally fire photon torpedoes into the wormhole again. Yes, yes. I, I, just, I love the idea that they keep going off like every time he moves and they just mm-hmm. keep looking at why. Why do they keep fighting? Another one? Who keeps doing that? They must have a genius strategist on their side. (laughs) How do they know every time we're about to enter? I don't know. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yes. Yeah. I'll be honest, John. So I really actually do like it when when Kira kind of laid into the chief and O'Brien in ops because people have bad days and she was having a bad morning. Sure. And they were kind of goofing off. And Julian does that from time to time. He's like, you know what? I don't have any patience today. I'm on call, but I'm not really on call. So I think I'll go bug Miles. Right. Because he's my right. bud. Right. But he's doing a job. Right. They're on yeah. the clock as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And the, the difference is you, you can tell that she's in a bad mood. And if you can tell that she's in a bad mood, then the correct answer from Bashir is, you know what? You're right. I'm sorry. We'll see you later. And right. then you wait until she's in a better mood. You know, that's, that's all it takes. Exactly. Yeah. And I like how that... 
I don't know, like anywhere else, maybe it's a small station, but, you know, stories kind of like run like wildfire because it finally gets to Odo. And I like how Odo said, well, if you're not going to tell me about it, do something about it. Like, you know, don't, you know, right. don't come moaning in here, you know, and bottling something up. If you don't want me to help you, then help yourself. Right. And I right. kind of like that because Odo and Kira have that kind of very directness about them now. Mm-hmm. It's a good moment. Yeah. I really yeah. did like that. Oh, John, time travel. <laughs> oh, oh, hey, I, I got a whole segment coming up. You, you just, you plant the seed right here, my friend. Okay, yeah. so if Kira wasn't to affect the timeline consciously or unconsciously, because she says so, but you never know. It's the butterfly effect. Sure. Our audience yeah. is smart enough to know what the butterfly effect means when it comes to ripples in time. Mm-hmm. So anything that Kira does would affect the timeline because you're not supposed to be back there at all. So when she, when she fought off those Bajoran thugs when they were threatening her father about the soup, and then little Kira Nariz, who's kind of like this frightened child, sees a very capable, very strong, very uh, able-bodied woman defeat this, you know, these, these thugs that are, that are threatening her father, don't you think that that would imprint on her in some way? Oh, but but in a positive way, you're yeah, saying. I mean, the, the, this is sort of the the paradox of of her seeing herself as that uh, as that figure, as that strong woman. That's exactly. interesting. Ah. Mm. Yeah, because how else would that have turned out? We don't know. Right. She saw, Ooh. you know, because she was always frightened. She was always running off, getting into trouble. Then she sees this her very first strong female hero mm-hmm. type. And I'm just saying that I know she was young. But when you see a superhero, that creates an impression. I was only, yeah. what, five, I think, when I saw Superman. And that's had stayed yeah. with me my entire life. Yeah. Now, you could take this a little, like a slightly different direction. You could say, well, the prophets put Major Kira into the body of somebody who was there. Mm-hmm. Who, you know, and, and maybe that person was this strong figure who did stand up to the... Uh, well, shall we call them soup Nazis? I guess we can. Oh, you did. I, oh, boom. Okay. So, <laughs> um, you know, so may, maybe that was okay. Maybe that was an all right moment to tinker with the past. But, but you know, we'll get into more uh, past tinkering mm-hmm. as we go along, I'm sure. Hey, we got to talk about a little bit of food here because there is food uh, mentioned or seen on screen throughout. Uh, just a, a couple of small ones I'm going to point out. Of course, we have a uh, the, the classic mention of uh, Hasperat, and uh, we have, you know, Bajoran tea. We have other things on that lush spread. By the way, the Hasperat, one of our listeners pointed out that he thought it could be kind of like sauerbraten, mm-hmm. like something that, uh, that takes on uh, those strong flavors. And I do love me some sauerbratens. So I'm not opposed to that idea. And then uh, the MOBA, I couldn't quite tell, but they were holding it cut. It was kind of a dark scene, but I'm going to go with dragon fruit because uh, it's exotic. And if you're doing a space buffet, make sure you put dragon fruit on there. Well, if you put dragon fruit on there in a space buffet, make sure you're serving it on the plates covered mm-hmm. with Spectrotech material so that there's Absolutely. space plates. Space plates right. yeah. for your, yeah, mm-hmm. you need exactly. That. You know, going back to the Hasperat, though, when we've seen, I think we've seen Lita serve Hasperat, or we've seen Hasperat serve to other Cardassians or Bajorans, but mm-hmm. it always looked like it was a turkey wrap. I remember us yep. kind of poking <laughs> yes. fun at it, but in yeah. this case, didn't she stick her fingers in the Hasperat and it kind of looked like some type of a... Like well, a, and remember, we, we had uh, Quark make a Hasperat souffle. souffle. Yeah. yeah. 
So yeah, a house brat can take on many forms, apparently. Apparently. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. I really liked uh, the repetition of Kira touching her mother's face because I think that in some way that was what her mother imprinted on Kira, young Kira, when she was a, a child, you know, to comfort her. And then maybe that just came out subconsciously, the way that she was doing it to her mother. And, of course, she wanted to see the scar, but right. I think that there was something that was almost uh, circular in nature about that scene. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. And just while we're talking about it, I thought the just as an effect, the dermal regenerator effect was really good mm-hmm. uh, because that's the kind of CG and particularly early CG effect that I really like where it's a complement to a practical effect. Yeah. So you have the practical scar and then they just use a little bit of CG to kind of blur it out and uh, even out the skin tone and then you cut back after you've taken it off. So I thought that was... Uh, very cool. Oh, and as we're talking about Dukat, oh, man, look, I know we're going to get into the time travel thing as well. But now does present day Dukat not recognize the Kira Narisa he met in the past? I have many as thoughts. Luma? Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. I, oh, I guess <laughs> it's just all the will of the prophets. Uh, but yeah. 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 I have many thoughts about that. Yes. Okay. All right. You know, I actually did like the scene where they had all of the Cardassian officers in that room. And I really liked the way that the the legate acted, not because I liked his actions, but I just liked that he wasn't he wasn't really lecherous and he wasn't really cruel. He was just there. You know, he was just kind of like, yeah, I'm here. I might as well make the best of it. You know, he could have Mm -hmm. easily turned on Kira. He could have threatened her with violence. He could have actually acted violence upon her. He could have done horrible things to her and no one would have actually just batted an eyelash but he didn't mm. you know he didn't yeah. yeah and i thought that was interesting he's like you know what yes ducat's one way he's very peacockish and, and very uh, uh you know just kind of uh, egotistic and then you had that really lecherous one that had maru in the corner but then you had mm-hmm. this guy he's like uh you got anything good to drink around here you got any good food because yeah. I'm here whether I like it or not, so I might as well make the, boast, the best of it. But I got a family back home I got to get to. You know, he just seemed well, like, I, like a natural yeah. dude. Yeah, I, I think we, you know, we often make the point about how DS9 is so good at presenting what otherwise would be seen as like a monoculture where you just mm-hmm. like this species is divine, you know, defined by this one trait. But with the Cardassians in particular, they've really given us a lot of layers to play with. You throw in a guy like Garrick, you know, again, playing just a completely different type. So, uh, yes, I agree with you. It's good to see whether it was a, a writer decision, a director decision, actor decision, or all of the above to give them some different personalities. And the one thing that I really, really wanted to see, if we were kind of like uh, um, skewing the timeline a little bit, is maybe perhaps maybe perhaps she either started or got involved with someone that resembled somebody that she knew from the shikar resistance maybe even shikar himself that was mm. on the station or or some of her friends you know the two friends that she always you know kind of joins up with every once in a while or yeah. some of the ones that were assassinated um the in the episode where they were killing off all her friends i kind of wanted to see her maybe be the impetus behind that Chikar cell resistance. That would have been a nice circular thing there, and it would have shown some motivation for her, I agree. Okay, that was, once again, extremely awkward. Pro tip for your own family reunion, don't bring any orbs.
We'll get back to wrongs darker than death and night in a moment. But first, a word from ExpressVPN. Hey, I... If you think about it, a few decades ago, private citizens used to uh, be largely that, private. And what changed? Well, uh, the Internet changed. It changed us. If you think about everything that you have browsed or searched for or watched or tweeted, now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected, aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record of you, your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something that only celebrities worried about, but in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. Or, Norman, you might also say that sort of like uh, in Star Trek when somebody says, show me the personal logs of Ensign so-and-so, and and you just, uh, there it is. There's their personal information. I bet they could have used ExpressVPN on the Enterprise and other places. And that's why to keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Logical, John. Flawlessly Logical. (laughs) And did you know that there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? And the worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. And one of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection, your connection, or those of you who use ExpressVPN get rerouted through an encrypted server and our IP addresses are masked. So every time I turn on ExpressVPN, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers, and it makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And as you've heard us say many times before, the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. So no matter what device you're on, your phone, your laptop, smart TV, whatever it is, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. And honestly, that's again, that's why we personally use it and we both love it. We wouldn't use a device without it. So you should check it out too. So uh, like me, like John, if you believe that your data and not risk is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash mission log and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash mission log. Go to expressvpn.com slash mission log to learn more. Hey, everybody. I'm Tawny Newsom. I know. And I'm Paul F. Tompkins. Yeah, I know. Why are you telling me? Look, and we're back with season two of Star Trek The Pod Directive. <laughs> we know who we are. If you are new to the show, we are huge Star Trek fans. We're talking to other Star Trek fans about being Star Trek fans. I almost said they were huge Star Trek fans, too. There's varying degrees. Look, everyone's a Star Trek fan here. Nobody's not a Star Trek fan. Different types of fans about, you know, fans of different series collectively. It's It's a lot of different stuff. We have a lot of fun this season. We talk to all kinds of cool people. We talk to Michelle Yeoh, Paul Shear and Amy Nicholson, Justin Simeon, my buddy Jack Quaid, and more. And more. Subscribe to Star Trek The Pod Directive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. It's none of our business. Yes, there are several apps. There are so many places you can listen. All that matters is that you listen and that you love us and that you rate and subscribe and, and, and subscribe. So, Norman and dear listeners, we, we might have, well a few points to make about this episode. But before we get into the heavy stuff, I I do want to bring up something that is not a big thing yet. I do realize that it'll come back. But I want to point out the chief and Dr. Bashir talking about the Battle of the Alamo. Um, 
I feel like to have this little nugget dropped here and this essentially throwaway dialogue, it's not important what they're talking about, but in retrospect, it is. It's illustrative of how we not necessarily romanticize history or war history all the time, but we can easily put wars of the past into neat categories of wins and losses, adventure or defeat, honor or sacrifice. It's a good counterpoint to the real history, and that's real in quotes, uh, that Major Kira is about to experience and how our hindsight will never be accurate. And it also raises some difficult questions about living out a violent fantasy in the holodeck, but maybe that's better suited for our podcast about Westworld when that comes in 2048. But yeah, I I just thought, like, what an interesting piece of dialogue to leave there. And it became more important to me when I came back the second or third time around. I agree. I mean, there there are certain things that, you know, if we have the safety protocols to be able to experience something like, say— the Battle of the Bulge mm-hmm. or the Alamo or what Worf did with the first emperor of, I think it was the first emperor of the Klingon Empire, mm-hmm. you know, when he, he killed thousands and thousands and thousands of, you know, Klingon enemies. But there is like a, a romantic part of that, knowing that, I think it's what um, Bashir said, you know, like, you know, fighting against unwinnable odds, you know, having this romantic nature of being, uh, you know, part of a desperate battle, fighting the good fight. That is a, a misconception, I think, sometimes of uh, history as either told by the winners or diluted throughout the course of its own legend. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, it, there's something really strange about that. You know, I, I feel like not a lot of people go into a battle thinking this is a desperate, honorable mission that we're on. I think a lot of people go in scared. A lot of people maybe go in with a steely professionalism thinking this is a thing we have to do. But it's this kind of hindsight that that only comes up later that, that's, again, I, I hate to use romanticizing, but it almost is that. It, it, you know, it's sort of uh, layering this uh, poetry on top of what would otherwise just be a horrific day for a lot of people involved. What was the poem that uh, O'Brien was saying to Nog? You know, cannons to the right of them, cannons to the left of them. Uh, here I am stuck in the middle with you. <laughs> exactly. You know, and I love that lyric myself. Yes. It's, yeah. it, it's great. It's great in a jazz ensemble. Yes, yes, but, yes. You know, but, the, but it's that uh, road to 300, not road 600. Yeah. Not the 300. Right, right. But something like yeah. that. You know, it was, uh, it was that Tennyson poem. And, I mean, think about what they were doing in Sacrifice of Angels. They were going to go into basically the heart of this unwinnable battle. Yeah. And here's the chief espousing romantic poetry. Yeah. About an unwinnable battle. Yeah. I don't know if there's comfort that in that. I, I don't know. I don't know. But, but it's interesting then to see that come up again with the Alamo. Uh, there's obviously that parallel to Starfleet being outnumbered and outgunned by the Dominion. And um, here we are then with kind of the underdog story again um, with what the Bajorans are going through in their occupation. And, well, that brings me to my next point about uh, Kira in this story. You want to talk about time travel a minute? <laughs> Do you want to, are we going to get into this here? Because uh, I think you got to rip this bandaid off. I think I right do. Now. I think I do. Okay. Yeah. Here's the story is Kira living out real history. Her, within the context of the universe of this story, living out real history. 
So apparently, using the orb of time for personal information is just a thing we can do now. And mm. first of all, I'm surprised that there's not a line of Bajorans at the door trying to figure out what happened to that solar sailing ship or maybe trying to stop the Cardassian invasion or maybe trying to get the numbers for the Bajoran lotto. I mean, it could be anything, but it's there. It's a thing that exists that facilitates this kind of experience. Would that be the power orb lottery? It is the power orb I'm, lottery. Yes. Yeah. I had to go you there. Did. Yeah. You Thank set you. me up. Thank you for doing that. There. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and they seem to make it pretty clear that you are interacting with real history. Hence, Cisco's not strong enough objection to the whole plan in the first place. You are actually there, back in time, because the wormhole aliens don't see any difference in the past and the present. Um, And when they rely on the old get-out-of-jail-free card, which is whatever happens, it's the will of the prophets, even though we have zero idea what their interests or motivations actually are. So there's something very disturbing about this whole idea to begin with. There's just a massive, well, there are many problems, but the first massive problem to point out is this, that just by being there, Kira Norris changes the story that she's a part of, even just as an observer, which she definitely is not. Even if it were just a playback, her very interaction, her very observation causes scenes to play differently than they did. She's back in time. She's altering the course of history. Norman, she nearly killed her mom with a bomb. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the interesting thing about this is, is what it opens up in terms of the world building. So let's go all the way back to the animated series. Let's go all mm-hmm. the way back to yesteryear, because this does have some type of like similar energy to what Spock did with younger Spock in yesteryear. Yeah. And you can chicken and egg the theoretical temporal effect of what happened if Spock did not beat his younger self, would this have happened? Would it have? Would is that what he needed to do? Restore t- to restore time? Because let's face it, the orb of time is the guardian of forever in Deep Space Nine. Yeah, it's the ability to be able to access the 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 time stream in order for you to be able to manipulate it at will if you wanted to. So yes, what the 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 plan that Kira hatched with the emissary's blessing was unbelievably problematic because it sets a precedent, right? Yeah. So since it was established in Trials and Tribulations that the Orb of Time is an actual instrument that is capable of giving someone, in this case, Kira or Norris, the ability to access and influence the time stream, it's not a what if, it's not not some type of altered story or um, elseworld story. This is actual time manipulation because Barry Waddle did it you know, for himself to to uh, exact his revenge as Arn Darvin on yeah. James Kirk. Yep, yep. Right? That was real. Yeah. And the temporal police came down on Cisco for it. So if that's the fact, that means that Captain Cisco, as the emissary of the prophets, he has the influence as their religious leader and the influence of a Starfleet governor <sighs> to be able to access this technology whenever he deems appropriate. 
Yeah, and I'm sorry, but this is a personal mission as well. Like, right. yeah, Kira can justify it by saying, like, well, if nothing happens, nothing happens. But if I go down there and I find that it's just about me, it's not about Starfleet. No, that <laughs> you can't have it both ways, Kira. He is your commanding officer. He is a Starfleet officer, but he is also the emissary. And I think Cisco made completely the wrong call here. Yeah, because yeah. think about it like in terms of let's, let's put the definitions where they fit. So Captain Sisko is a Starfleet officer, which means he knows that the Federation and the Bajoran religious belief system have to be separated, powers of church and state. Mm-hmm. He's the most sacred religious figure on the station. So if he has access to what quite could possibly be the most powerful artifact of alien technology in the known universe, or at least in this quadrant— then why not just go back and change the outcome of the Dominion War before it starts? Yeah. Yeah. Bingo. That's it, what you're giving him the power to yeah, do. Yeah. If it's that important. I mean, you know, look, we, we've used time travel to save the Earth because, well, fortunately, we deemed that Earth was important enough to save. Here's the whole Alpha Quadrant. So you can mm-hmm. do that. You've just introduced it. Here you go. But no, it's so, in statistical yeah. um, statistical probabilities. Like, okay, right. you can give me like doctor, you can give me all the facts and figures you want, but you know what? I got a time machine. I'm going to just stop this whole thing before it happens, and I'm going to save 900 billion lives. You know why? Because yeah. I can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's essentially what it's saying. And, and it's interesting that you know the the Guardian of Forever seems to have an understanding of what the quote unquote correct timeline is. You know, it, it knows enough, and whether you're seeing what happens in Discovery or what happened yesteryear or what happened in City on the Edge, um, it knows enough to say, like, oh, the, this is how it was supposed to be. You messed it up. Now you have to go back and correct it. We have zero concept of that in this case. It's just Kira going back, and then what's the first thing she does? She pulls a knife on some Bajorans, and then she ends up on Tarek Nor. Who knows what's going to happen to her up there? And literally, again, almost blew up her mother with a bomb. And I get it. I get that her mother supposedly died, according to Kira's understanding, when she was three years old. So as far as her concern is, that's not that big of a change. But it also would have taken out Gul Dukat at the same time, mm-hmm. which absolutely changes the timeline for everybody else involved. So... There's a huge problem with all of this, and I'm going to save probably my biggest problem with all of this for our next segment because it's not just about time travel, but it's about why we're using time travel here and my my question about that. I want to move on to a slightly different point here. Well, an entirely different point. But we, we, hey, we can jump around. It's our show. It's our prerogative. Um, and I just want to talk about the historical parallel here. Maybe I should have opened with this. Um, and let me preface this bit by just saying that I understand that there are many historical parallels, but this just happens to be the one that I have most recently read about. So I'm going to go down this path. There are others that can be explained here as well. During the Nazi occupation of France, many women found themselves in the position of being forced into servitude with the enemy, much as we see here. And they or their families were threatened. They had no food. They had no way to stay alive. And after the Allied liberation, starting with D-Day in 1944, a really terrible thing happened. And that was called the Epuration Sauvage, or in English, the Wild Purification. 
French men, and it was almost always men, let's be clear here, brutalized these women. Uh, a minimum, uh, from our modern understanding, a minimum of 20,000 women by shaving their heads, stripping of their clothes, sometimes tarring them and parading them through towns to be scorned and sometimes stoned as collaborators. And among those women, those thousands of women, maybe there were a handful who actually were collaborators. The majority of them were not. And regardless, this campaign, it was neither legal nor sanctioned nor in any way humane in any sense of the word. It was an excuse to victimize people who were convenient targets and not the actual perpetrators. It was also incredibly self-serving because if you happen to be a French citizen who was attacking the so-called collaborators, then you couldn't possibly be someone who did anything wrong during the occupation yourself, now could you? The lack of empathy, the lack of forgiveness, absolutely terrible, horrific. And again, it plays out in many other historic examples. I want the cooler heads to prevail. I want for people like Kira to show more understanding. This is the kind of lesson that she needs to learn. I'd rather, from my very privileged position here looking at the story from a great deal of historic and emotional distance. I would rather one guilty person get away than 20,000 innocent people be punished the way they were here. And my concern in this story is that this is the, uh, to use a terrible term for it, this is the slippery, slippery slope for Akira because she's decided that she's the one who has to be the judge, jury, executioner for what happened in the past. I, I think it's a terrible position for her to be in. And for the greater good, it's a terrible position for other Bajorans like her to be in. Um, it, it pains me that she's there. I guess the big question here is that what is she more angry about? Is she angrier that her mother was a so-called collaborator or that Goldicott was telling the truth? Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, because uh, yeah. that's, I think, what she's really having a hard time coming to terms with. Perhaps if she found out about this organically, for whatever reason, she would use the orb of time. Then maybe she wouldn't have been as judgmental because she's like, you know what? My mother did what she had to do. She was still in love with my father. She provided a means for them, my brothers and me to be able to survive. My mother endured all of that with Goldicott because she found that that was the sacrifice she needed to make in order for the rest of her family, who she loved dearly, to be able to endure the slave camps and to be able. And then I had a chance as a child to live and then fight the battle anew mm. when I was older. And, and but it's because the cot told you. Yeah, right, right. Well, well, see, here's the thing. Right. Imagine she can still have ambivalent feelings about her mother. I think that's fine. Um, Imagine the strength she would have found in being able to stand up to Dukat with those very words that you just said. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that would be a very different outcome. That would have been a true moment of growth for her, I think. But now it's Dukat using that as leverage against her, emotional leverage against her and her standing her ground. Because at the very beginning of the episode, you know, she told Dax that my father said that my mother was the strongest woman he ever knew. 
and she would be proud. Dax says that she would be proud of the woman that Kira has become. So she has built this legacy, this emotional legacy or this legend of her mother and what her mother was to her, what she believed her to be. And then mm. Dukat comes in and dashes all of that and undermines, you know, her love and her pride for her own mother. And then she finds out that it's true. Yeah. That she risked all of this. She risked her relationship with Cisco using his influence at the emissary, her relationship with the prophets using this orb of technology to be able to see what wasn't a lie. Yes, but it, it's not like your your experience with your family is not someone else's to own. You know, mm -hmm. so that that's why I would have loved to have seen some separation in her mind uh, of, yeah, you, you can you can hate or disagree or not understand what somebody in their situation did. You can tell yourself over and over that you would do something differently. You know, Kira comes at this with a lifetime of different experience. Kira comes at this with a lifetime of having been in the resistance, growing up fighting and killing Cardassians. That's a, that, your, her immediate reaction is when she's on Tarek Noor, we got to find the resistance. We got to get out of here. We're going to go join a cell back on Bajor. Here's what we'll do. That's not Maru's experience right. at all, right? you know? Mm -hmm. And the same way that Kira can't own Maru's experience, she can't allow Dukat to own that experience for her. It's insidious. It, it is manipulation to the highest order. It's terrible. Right. Things would have been very different if she had let that call go to voicemail, you know? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. This episode has been called like Ghost the Call. That's what the episode yes, should have been titled. Yes, there you go. Right, 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 right. Ghosting the subspace, subspace transmission. Right. Um, I wanted to turn this around a little bit to um, more of kind of like where Dakot is in this episode because, uh, once again, Mark Alimo turns in another fantastic performance as kind of like prime line Dukat yeah. and then, you know, past Dukat. But so do you think because of Dukat's infatuation with Maru that – I can't believe I'm going to say this, but mm -hmm. I have to say this for discussion's sure. sake. That we can assume that he actually wasn't the cold-blooded and calculating narcissist that we believe him to be. Let let me or okay, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah, we, you and I are playing three-dimensional chess here. Go ahead. So no, okay, so that was my move. That's my my queen to queens level three. Okay, I'm going to ask it a slightly different way, and okay. say. Is what you're posing here Ducat's justification to himself about who he is, about the better, civilized, generous person that he is? That's a lie that he tells to himself in order to hide the fact that he is a murderous, genocidal tyrant, given the chance— and if it is the lie that he tells, whether it's the lie that he tells to himself or it is the actual truth that he is a better person, that he's not the terrible person that others believe he is, how can you tell the difference and doesn't even matter at that point? Because mm. if he is, he is. Mm -hmm. If it's a lie, but he believes the lie, then he is. So your move <laughs> I mean, we're leaving all of this open to our listeners as well yeah. once again john flawlessly logical <laughs> but logic can't always win a chess game yeah. so, um i guess it really depends on 
the truth, right? The perception mm-hmm. we have perceptions of the truth as being told by Kira's experience as seeing through the seeing through the orb of time here. But did this become like Ducat's modus operandi of his personality? Did it start sometime later on after this? I know that the legate was saying that it kind of was the way that he behaved, but maybe it was just at the beginning stages of it. Maybe he actually really did have feelings for Maru. I mean, maybe he was justifiably generous because there was a part of his heart that actually loved these comfort women that he was exposed to. And I think that that's a strange, I mean, I know that's his, that's, I'm just trying to justify him in the past. Yeah. But now in the present, I completely agree with what you're saying because he is a little fixated on his relationship with Norris. Is that because yeah. of Maru? I, well, I, I think that answers a lot about his fixation on Norris. I, I think that's a really interesting reveal from this episode. So I'm I'm glad that we have that little extra bit of character detail there. I do think that what you're saying, though, isn't necessarily mutually exclusive. He can be the manipulative, self-serving person that he is. He can look at Bajorans as less than him. He can look at them as expendable. He can look at them as a problem to be eradicated. He can also be, well, in that scene of manipulation in the party where where he says the same line over and over again to sort of win the affections of the woman that he's after. Like All that can be Mm -hmm. calculated manipulative as it is. I think he can also, for whatever part of him that is feeling and caring, and it might be a very small part of him and it might have only existed at that time, that could have been directed at Maru. It doesn't make that a functional relationship. It doesn't mean that he at some point wouldn't have uh, either allowed her to die or done something horrible to her family to get them out of the way, depending on which way the war swung. But I don't think those are – I don't think it's necessarily an either-or proposition. I think it's Mm. all built into the twisted psychology of what Ducat is bringing to the table. See, and that also kind of compounds something that I thought was really interesting because not only did he have a fixation with Kira being the daughter of somebody who he was in a relationship with, who he quote-unquote was in love with, but he has that same kind of fixation with Torzial because Ducat was also in love with another Bajoran comfort woman mistress mm-hmm. in uh, Tor Naprem, and now he has this very much of a similar twisted fixation on Zial trying to keep her emotional loyalty close to him the way that he wants Kira's emotional loyalty close to him in a different way. So uh, it's, there is a pattern here that we're seeing with Ducat, you know, being kind of like this uh, masochistic narcissist, but he, at least he's very consistent about it. Right. Yeah. Oh, also John, (laughs) because we did bring this because we did bring this up earlier. Mm -hmm. So, if Kira is, in fact, uh, inhabiting the physical person, uh, personality of this uh, character that she has turned into in this, uh, in this, this, this orb quest, mm-hmm. then at least physically, wouldn't Dukat, who was saved by a woman who planted the bomb in his quarters, recognize her at least physically decades later? Isn't maybe... 
that why he's kind of infatuated with Kira? See? Yeah, see, see that this is the problem with time travel here. It's the problem with this cyclical thing that we've set up where it is Kira who saves Ducat's life at that point anyway. So, yes, of course, Kira. Look, it, it, this is why Marty McFly's mom should see 18-year-old Marty and uh, and go, wait a minute. I, Calvin, sir. Calvin. Calvin I, I once liked a guy who looked a lot like you. Upon further thought, I'm not sure orbs are suitable for any kind of gathering. Well, okay, maybe the one that gives you a vision where you wind up naked. Well, John, that was an excellent discussion, and I think that we're actually going to come up with probably an even longer conclusion, but... That's what we do here at Mission Log. We take a look at the episode, and we size it up, and we do our due diligence. And at the end here, we see if it uh, has any morals or meanings or messages. But first, let's see if it withstood the test of time, and does it hold up? Does it hold up for you, John? Uh, okay. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm like Kira at the end of the episode. I'm a very mixed mind. Uh, should I forgive it, or should I have just blown it up entirely? Um, I feel like... This is the right episode done the wrong way. The setup is clunky. It is full of contrivance. Oh, look, it's Goldacott just popping in for no good reason. Oh, look, uh, we'll go back in time with the time orb because we just, we do that now. I hate this use of time travel. I know that we are asked to swallow a lot with Star Trek when it comes to time travel. You've got slingshotting around the sun. You've got the uh, the guardian of forever. Sometimes time travel is easy. Sometimes it's difficult. But it is a thing. And I, I, I just, I don't appreciate the ease and the contrivance for this use of it. And especially the fact that, as we pointed to the emissary, our own Captain Sisko, he, he just okays it. He's like, yeah, okay, well, whatever happens, it's the will of the prophets. I hate that so much. I know <laughs> I, you do. I yeah. Know I, you do. It, it is the get-out-of-jail-free card that absolutely ruins stories for me. But worst of all, here's the worst thing about this episode, and, and I understand that there will be people who disagree with me, uh, not the least of which is people who worked on this episode. This story is needlessly cruel to its characters. The lessons are strong. The production, the acting, the depths that they explore are all very powerful. I would even say necessary. But I question if Kira really needed to learn those lessons here in the way that she did. She's not an idiot. She's also not an innocent. She lived through the cruelties of war over and over again. She compromised herself, and she saw others around her compromise themselves, too. So it's one thing entirely for her to have the need to reconcile what her mother went through and offer up some kind of forgiveness or understanding or not. That's her prerogative. But it's something else to put her there, to make her a witness to the abuse, and then worst of all, because it's Star Trek and it's just mysterious orbs, there's not actually a way to change the past to make any of this better. So it comes across as just torturing Kira. It, at least, and I know it's a trope, uh, the O'Brien must suffer, but I feel like 
usually when that's happening to O'Brien, it's a situation where it's something that can't be avoided. And he didn't volunteer to go there. It's something that happened upon him, and then he he has to come out of it, and hopefully he's better for it once he gets out of it. But again, it's overused, you know, or else it wouldn't be a trope. And here's the problem. I know that I'm supposed to love this episode. I know that it's deep, and I know that it's serious, and it's dark, and it is full of those great performances. And it really, truly does strike another chord for me by using historical analogies the way that it does in this far-off future. That is all good stuff. I, I, I want to honor the episode for those good things that it does. I can't get past the way this story is told, though. And it might sound like a cop-out, but I really wish this is a lesson that Kira could have gotten by reading a book or by doing something else. Or maybe it's a holosuite. Or maybe it's encounters with other people who were around her before. You know, look, we had that really interesting relationship. Um, I'm going to mess up the name. Uh, Gamor, right? Who was sort of the surrogate father for her. There is a trove of information to give to Kira and let her be on this journey. I thought this was a cruel way to do it. And I know it's fiction. But I care about these characters, and I care way, uh, about the way these stories are told. Mm -hmm. So it holds up in many ways. It holds up because it's powerful and dark and dramatic and thoughtful. But I don't know that I will watch this one again because I'm not fully satisfied about the mechanics of how this story is told, how we get there makes me angry about Cisco slash the emissary just <laughs> letting this happen. And I'm not asking for a happy ending at the end. I'm not asking that, that Kira just sort of wash all of this off and then she's fine. But I'm still not satisfied necessarily with where we got. So I'm at best ambivalent, but maybe realistically, I'm just sort of exhausted by this episode. What about you, Matt? You know, I think I'm ambivalent, but for different reasons. Okay. And there, there, are, uh, there are a lot of aspects to this episode like you that I did like. And even though I have a major issue, a major issue with Cisco and Kira exploiting the emissary's position to access the <laughs> right. orb of time. Yeah. The emissary and the Starfleet governor of the quadrants access to the orb of time. I'm going to give a little bit of that a pass because I think that that's just a contrivance for the narrative to get her to, to her storyline. Mm. I'm, not, I'm not saying that it's perfect. I'm just saying that in an hour's worth of television, I think that they just need to kind of like shoehorn that in to, and then wait 20 years for two guys like us to talk about it <laughs> later on. Right? right. But I really think that my... My ambivalence teeters towards a successful episode because I think that Nana is just an incredible tour de force performance mm -hmm. and another fantastic episode focusing on Norris. But I also think that this episode poses a very powerful moral question. And I think that still in the spirit of Star Trek is, is want to do as they did in Change of Heart, which was last week's episode. So the question was in... To Worf and Dax, what would Worf do? Um, what would you do in Worf's place? 
And in this episode, what would you do in Major Kira's place? Can I, or can you, John, or can the audience just sit back in our comfortable arena of wherever we're watching this at home or with friends or, like you said, in the privilege of the comfort of we're watching it in, mm-hmm. and just pass the moral judgment of right and wrong because it's convenient to do so after digesting this hour of entertaining television? Or are we really looking at the deeper feeling and emotional depth of this episode for the moral issue and quandary it presents? And that question is... Who gives one the right to pass summary and absolute judgment over the decision of somebody else, especially if there are nuances to those decisions that overlap what some believe are easily right versus wrong decisions and the consequences that arise because of those decisions? So I do think that there's a little bit lost in the translation to the depth and the gravitas to tell an episode like this. And I love that you brought up the historical ties because the Chinese women suffered similar you know, uh, atrocities to the Japanese officers in World War II, the French right. did to the Nazis in occupied France. And I think that this episode only really touched on that emotionally. Hmm. And aside from that, if the production department just pushed it a little bleaker, like we saw in the episode with Odo's flashback and things passed... Uh, yeah, I think that the setting just was a little too, and for lack of a better word, just a little too clean or bright for something that needed to be really dark and impactful. Like you said that it is dark and it is serious and it is, but I think it needed to be further. I think they needed to push that envelope even further so that you really felt how desperate Kira's decision was in order to save her mother or save Ducat and feel the desperation of the Bajoran people. Interesting. I, I'm going to jump right ahead to morals and meaning's messages because I, th- there was something that you posed in there as a question that I feel like I also <laughs> will come back to in those morals, meaning's messages. So first of all, uh, the, there is a Faustian bargain here, clearly. Uh, it, Maru is tempted and manipulated but she is tempted by Ducat and the Cardassian structure above her. It's easy to understand, and we all simultaneously hope that we would do better while also realizing that we can act out of desperation and immediate need. And those things get very complicated and convoluted in those real-life situations. We have the protection of distance from this or from the historical reality of this. There's another interesting exploration here for Kira, which is that you can't truly know someone else's motivations or live their life. Kira is given the opportunity to see history play out in front of her, and that only makes things more complicated, which, well, maybe I appreciate on on some level. It's not so easy anymore to put her mother into one neat category as either hero or enemy. I think that that's valuable to see people in their totality. The reality is that we all have our limits and we all get pushed. Judge not lest ye be judged. I, I think I've read that somewhere before. <laughs> um, Kieran DeReese is going to have a harder time now than ever to put aside her anger and to be able to accept her own family's past. But she's opened that door. Now she's got to deal with it. Now she's got to work through it. The thing that you 
we're just touching on a moment ago about how much forgiveness uh how can we we really reconcile our feelings about somebody else's decisions um that that struck something with me because i was asking myself how much of meru should kira forgive or condemn in this case and i just think on a on a bigger maybe like a 30,000 foot view we live in a time where we're very quick to discount a person's entire contribution to the world we we're almost running a tally on their failings and faults deciding if their name should ever be spoken again now for kira it's personal she sees what is in her eyes the worst in her own family's past and at least for a moment she was going to be okay with obliterating that from history right literally bombing the situation out of existence i think it's a far better thing to show the shred of compassion that she did at least for a second maybe allowing the people around her to make the mistakes that they're going to make and then realizing that it's not her problem to fix You know at at first John I when I when I watched this episode I think the cursory message that I got from this was in the end love will always be stronger than hate but I felt like you know what that just seems a little too topical who, who, I mean, on the surface who who's love who, who are you thinking of Kira's love for family Maru's love for family cuz I I I'm I'm left ambivalent again about uh Neris well, I think so, that Nerissa's love for her mother is stronger than the overall hate to let her die. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a lot of hate to let somebody die or to murder your own mother. That's she was, a lot she was of hate. borderline, man. She was borderline. Yeah. But that's, yeah. I mean, it will, that, that decision, yeah. I think that that could have been the message that I wanted to land on. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to go a different way. I wanted to find something a little deeper because I think that, that this episode pushed me a little bit to do that. And I think this episode is about absolutism and moral superiority until the unthinkable happens to you. Yeah. So let's go back to Waltz, which was the last time that we saw Dukat before this episode. Kira's revelation at the end of, of this episode, it's kind of the bookend to what Cisco's revelation was at the end of Waltz when Cisco says to Dax that, you know, he said that uh, nothing is truly good or truly evil. Everything seems to be a shade of gray. And then you spend some time with a man like Dukat and you realize that there really is such a thing as truly evil. Now, Norris is an absolutist. She's black and white. She's good and evil. She's rebel or collaborator. She's right mm-hmm. and wrong. This is her compass. We all know this throughout the course of these years that we've learned to uh, accept and understand her character and this is her compass in life, moral or otherwise, and how can it not be after having to fight and suffer and survive since she was a child? But what I love about this episode and that is that she's faced with a truth that she never intended or expected to see, the actual truth, quote unquote, about her own mother, a collaborator, a comfort woman, and most sickening to Kira, Dukat's lover. So... How can you reconcile the absolute right and the absolute wrong here? Was it right for her mother to use her influence with Dakot so that Maru's family, her mother's family, including Norris herself as a child, were well-fed, well-looked after, somewhat cared for? Because that was the sacrifice Maru made to appease Dakot's whims. 
Mm-hmm. Was it wrong for Maru to accept her lot in life while making the very best of the very worst situation for her being taken away from her family? Was it immoral or morally reprehensible for Maru to use whatever advantage she had so that her family was spared the sufferings of other Bajorans that uh, suffered what her family was spared from? So it's easy for all of us to sit back and armchair quarterback the rights and wrongs of the decisions of the past, but what we are wholly ignorant of are the minor details that led to more complex decisions at the time when those decisions had to be made. Maru didn't cause the deaths of the Bajorans that Norris lays at the feet of the collaborators. And it's very well possible that Maru could have used her influence to soften Dukat's rage from time to time because she was still loyal to her people. But to Norris, it's either you are with us or you are against us. And until mm-hmm. this moment, maybe it was her mother that changed her outlook in the past, but I suspect it's also because in seeing the truth in Dukat's words, and in the truth in her mother's actions that Norris is finally starting to realize, and I love quoting J. Michael Straczynski. You know I, <laughs> I know you do. <laughs> quote, unquote, understanding is a three-edged sword, your side, their side, and the truth. So in the end, did Kira save her mother or did she forgive a collaborator? If it's the former, then Kira acted justly as a daughter would. But if it were the latter, then Kira has just exposed herself mentally and emotionally to a whole new perspective of her universe and perhaps has just experienced a significant moment of personal growth. I hope so. I really do. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Inquisition. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers. Adam Brusky, Homer Frizzell, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. I forget which orb had the naked visions. Was it the orb of pantslessness? transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.